something that you didn't want to do? Ever had to do something that you didn't want to do? In the mid-1990s, I was working for a nonprofit organization that was adding on to their facilities. And so early in the morning in the spring, I met a lumber truck who was delivering plywood, buys, and those kind of things to the uh, construction site. And so I got out there early, and he came, and I showed him where we wanted the stuff put. And uh, so he starts backing in there, and I'm just kind of watching in the familiar beep, beep, beep sound of those big heavy trucks backing in, one of those big flatbed kind of trucks. And as I'm watching him, all at once I heard this loud bang. And then the truck just kind of lurches, and building materials go sprawling everywhere, and the truck just stops. And my ears and my eyes were telling me he blew a tire. But in just milliseconds, my nostrils were telling me something else. And the driver gets out of the truck and he looks back and it's kind of tilted sideways and he's just shaking his head in disgust. And I walk over and my nose was telling me correctly that he had just fallen into our septic tank. We had no idea it was there. He had no idea it was there. And when I say fell in, it was one of those double axle, double tire kind of things. He just didn't break the lid. I mean, both tires were in it, the lid was broke, the sides had caved in, all kinds of yucky stuff was running out on the ground, and it just smelled awful. He couldn't get it out, and we had to call a tow truck, and he leaves, and we've got clientele coming later, and I'm just sitting there looking at this big, stinky mess. And I'm thinking to myself, I sure wish I had somebody I could delegate this to. But there was nobody. So I dutifully march up the hill, and I get our backhoe, and I got a dump truck, and I come back down there and, and start digging this out. And I mean, I am gagging. And I'm thinking to myself, how long did you go to school so you wouldn't have to do things like this? Right? Eventually got it all cleaned up. But you know, I would have done anything that day to have been able to delegate that to something, somebody else. Ever happened to you to do something you want to do? Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, you have a toddler and mom's not home. I think most dads can identify with this. And that toddler blows out one of those diapers. You know what I'm talking about? Like when it goes out the sides and up their back. And I mean, it's just terrible. And you're carrying them like this. And it's not a quick change, you know. And mom's not home. You got to do it. It's like this is going to. You know, peel it off of them, stick it them, you know, clean them up, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's a sick grandchild that throws up all over the carpet and you've got to do it because it, it, it's your turn. Or maybe a coworker, they skip out on a task and you end up having to do it and you end up staying late because they didn't do what they were supposed to. Or maybe it's your little brother. And he didn't let the dog out last night like he was supposed to. And now there's trash all over the kitchen floor where the dog got into it. And, and you've got to clean it up. Maybe your child did something that they weren't supposed to at school. And you've got to go to the principal's office. Ever had those kind of things happen? Or has God ever told you to do something? And you didn't want to do what God told you to do. And you kind of run from God. 
They say confession is good for the soul. I don't know if that's true. We're going to do a little confession this morning. How many of you, we're going to have a raise of hands here in just a second. How many of you ever either thought about it or actually, maybe not for a long period of time, but maybe a couple hours or something like that, when you say between the time you were able to walk until you got your driver's license, thought about or actually did run away from home? You know, get some kind of tip with your parents on, but just stick your hands up there. All right, I think just about everybody has, has thought about that at, at probably one time or another, just, you know, just running away from home because you're getting, you know, a tip with your parents. We parents are good at making our children mad, aren't we? And uh, just about everybody, I think, does that at some point or another. But let me ask you another question. How many of you, don't raise your hand on this one, and no elbow on anybody either. How many of you, God asked you to do something, and you ran away from God? You know, that usually happens after the driver's license and forward, doesn't it? God asks you to do something, and that's not like packing your bags and running away from home. This is more like, I know better, and I know what the Bible says, but I am pretty sure that if I say yes to this situation, I know what God's going to ask me to do, and I don't want to do it. It's that run from God thing. And we kind of tone down our conscience to God. And you run away from God into this relational thing that you shouldn't be in. Or you run away from God into this financial thing. Or God has asked you to forgive somebody, but you don't want to do it. You know, sometimes I think when we think about running away from God, we always kind of think about vocational kinds of things. A lot of times it's not. It's relationships. It's financial. It might be business-related stuff. It might be not holding a grudge against somebody. Now, it might be a, a vocational thing. Maybe when you were younger, God was kind of nudging you towards some kind of service ministry. And you're like, no, God, I don't want to be poor the rest of my life. Have you seen the salaries those nonprofits make? Come on. Or maybe it's the mission field. You're like, God, like Austin Holcomb said, I don't want to go four years without eating a Chick-fil-A. Please, God, surely not. And the terminology we kind of use from that is running from God. It's not like something that you don't believe in God, but there's this issue. And you're like, God, you just kind of stiff arm him a little bit. Hands off of me. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do my own thing. And it's not that you don't pray anymore, and it's not that you don't go to church. I mean... You still pray to God when, when there, something happens and, and you need God. It's kind of like, God, I need you to fix this. But please, let's not talk about that anymore. God, focus. Focus, God, because I need you to do this. But we're not going to talk about that other thing. And maybe we don't say that, but we do it. And we're a runner. God is on the back burner. God is in the, the rearview mirror. He's in the peripheral vision. I think we all kind of run from God for kind of the same reasons. I think a lot of people run from God just because, let's face it, most of us don't like to be told what to do. Doesn't even matter if it's God. We just don't want somebody telling us what to do. Or we run from God because we're afraid that if we surrender, we miss out on some good things. 
Maybe some good people. Maybe your scenario involves uh, maybe a, a young lady and you're thinking, well, anybody can be a Christian, but not everybody can be beautiful, right? And so you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to kind of go into this relationship and I know God doesn't want me to. And, and you know, we'll just kind of settle it down and then, and then maybe I'll bring it back around, you know, after we get it all kind of figured out. And, and then we'll kind of, kind of come back to God and, and I can have, kind of have my cake and eat it too. And it's like, ooh, I found a loophole. And God's like, oh, you're so smart. <laughs> or maybe it's the opposite of that, the flip side. You know, you're, you're a Christian and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, not everybody, you know, everybody can be a Christian, but not everybody can make that much money and drive that car. And I'm going to go into this relationship with this guy that I know God doesn't want me to go into. And he's cute and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to go into that relationship and we'll kind of settle into it and, and maybe we'll even get married. And then after all that happens, then we'll just kind of swing back and, and, and hopefully God will be okay with all of that. So in the meantime, God, just got to kind of put you, just put you on hold there, okay? Just, just on hold. And so we run from God because we don't want to miss out on something. Or sometimes I think we run from God, I'm going to borrow a line from <coughs> Philip Yancey. We confuse life with God. My life isn't going so good. It's God's fault. Why should I do anything that God wants me to do if he's not doing stuff for me, or at least it doesn't look like he's doing anything for me? Now, if God will do something for me, you know, we've got this thing going, give and take, and if he'll do some stuff for me, then I'll do something for him. But in the meantime, why should I consider what God wants me to do? Because God's not helping me, or at least we think that. And we're running from God, and we don't want to surrender. And we confuse our life circumstances with God. And we abandon, and we run. So today, we are doing this new series to study this idea of, of running from God. And to guide us along the way, we're going to study this guy in the Old Testament by the name of Jonah. I think Jonah is the most famous runner in all of Scripture. You know, I was thinking about this as I kind of was planning out a, a, a preaching calendar back in last December for the year. And it dawned on me, I have actually never taught on Jonah, either from the pulpit or even in Sunday school. I just thought that was interesting. So this is kind of fun for me because it, it's kind of new and kind of different. And you know, the, you hear the word Jonah. And I think for so many of us in this room, we think flannel graph, right? You know, the old flannel graphs and teachers moving stuff around on the flannel graphs. Or, or maybe you think veggie tales, you know, maybe because of your grandkids, you think about veggie tales and, you know, whales and fishes and those kind of things. And, you know, sometimes people aren't comfortable with the story of Jonah. They don't believe that a man could stay alive in a fish, you know, for three days and three nights. Some people have trouble swallowing that tail. They think it's facetious. I worked on that all week. I think we're laughing. And they point out that this would require a miracle. And that, you know, I'll just be honest with you. Those of us who believe this book believe in miracles. And we believe God can do miracles. And not only do I believe that God can do miracles, when you read this, it reads more like history than a fairy tale. Nineveh was a real place in 750 B.C. 
Assyria was a real country. Now, maybe if it was called Narnia, it would sound more like a fairy tale. But it's Nineveh, and, it, it, and it's historical. And Jonah was a real person. Jesus references Jonah 750 years later in the book of Matthew. Jesus seemed to believe that Jonah was a real person, and this was a real event that took place. Or maybe you can even argue it this way. God created humans. We as, human, we as humans have created underwater communities where people can, life can be sustained underwater for you know up to six months at a time. They're called nuclear submarines. And they go months and months without surfing. Surfing. Surfacing. That's what I'm looking for. So maybe we could cut God some slack. And he could keep somebody alive for three days and three nights in a fish's belly. So what do we know about Jonah? He was a prophet. Prophets had kind of dangerous tasks. You might could say in some ways that that prophets were like God's special forces. They had to deliver messages that people didn't want to hear. And, you know, when we were younger, our parents gave us those kind of messages. But now that we're grown up, sometimes people come into our lives and they want to give us a message that we don't want to hear. And, and we say, no, no, that's none of your business. You just, you, just, you just leave me alone. But people didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say so oftentimes either. And it was one thing for a prophet to go to, a, to an Israelite king or something where there was a commonality. Somebody like King David who believed in the God Yahweh. And it was one thing to go to them and they would want to hear what God would say. But it was quite another to go to some place like Nineveh. Nineveh didn't believe in the God Yahweh. The Ninevites, they didn't want to hear about some God that they weren't familiar with that was going to judge them. That's what God asked Jonah to do. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell them that I'm tired of the way that they're living. And I want you to tell them they need to change. Or I'm going to judge them. And of course, Jonah, he didn't want any part of this. You know, John, Jonah's probably thinking to himself, let's just skip the warning, God, and go straight to the judgment, Okay. Don't, don't, don't send me to this place. They're a constant threat to us. And I think Jonah understood some things that maybe we don't. Maybe you're not familiar with this. But the Assyrians, the Ninevites, were Assyrians. They lived in the country of Assyria. They were barbaric. They were about as cruel as it would come. I mean, they would decapitate their, their victims and then parade through the streets holding heads up on swords. They would play games with people's heads. They were also, they always got the first place trophy for being able to skin people alive and keep them alive the longest while they were doing that. They were very good at those kinds of things. So there's just, just this cruel, barbaric country. And you can understand, John, like, I don't want to go there. This would be the equivalent of you being a Jew in the United States, say in 1941, and somebody says, or God tells you, I want you to be a missionary to Nazi Germany in 1941. And who would want to do that if you were a Jew, right? That's what this is the equivalent of. John, I want you to go and I want you to tell those people that the God Yahweh is going to judge them. 
You know what Jonah does? He's like you and me. He said, God, I'm not doing that. I am not going to do that. I still believe in you. I'm not an atheist. But I'm not going to do that. So let's look at the story. All the words will be on the screen if you want to find it in your Bible. The easiest way to find the book of Jonah is go to the book of Matthew and then count back seven books. If you start in the book of Genesis, I'll be ten minutes into this and you'll still be trying to fucking it. So count back or just watch the words up on the screen. Verse 1 says, Jonah 1.1. 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now when Jonah fled, when he ran, he really ran. He booked it about as far as you could go. I want you to look at this map they're going to throw up on the screen. Most people think that he lived in Jerusalem and Joppa was about uh, 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So he goes to Joppa and you can see where Nineveh is. And Nineveh is about 550 to 600 miles to the northeast. So he gets in a boat and he goes 2,500 miles to the west. He goes to Tarshish, which is in southern Spain. It was basically as far as kind of the known trade routes of the world were at that time. So this is just about as far as he could go. I mean, this is like God telling you to go to Alaska, so instead you go to Antarctica. It's that kind of idea here. Just completely the wrong direction. That's your story too, is it? God says, I don't want you to be involved with her. And you're like, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. God says, I want you to stay here. And you're like, no, I'm going there. And that's exactly what you do. And I think all of us have a, a segment, or maybe it's the story of our whole life, where we just decide we're going to do what we want to do. Having been with a lot of runners and talked to a lot of runners and been a runner myself, I think there are some things that all runners have in common. And the first one, you see it in this map. When people run from God, they run to the craziest places. Jonah running to Tarshish would be like you and I running somewhere crazy. I mean, be like, I'm going to go camping in Afghanistan. I'm going to go hiking in Iran. I'm going to take a vacation to, you know, some crazy spot in the world. You know, the craziest thing that you can think of. Jonah hopping in a boat and basically taking the longest sea journey that was possible at that time. It was just nuts. But when you and I run from God, we don't make a lot of sense. We do crazy things. And a lot of times we run and we really don't even know where we're running to. We're just running away. I asked Renee the other day, I said, Renee, did you ever run away from home when you were a kid? She said, well, I, I thought about it, but I didn't actually do it. 
She said, I was in first grade and my mom and I got in this tiff. So she said, I went to my room and I got a paper grocery bag. Y'all remember paper grocery bags? She said, I took as many of my clothes as I could and I just real neatly put them in the paper bag. And I rolled the little top of it up and then I went in to show my mom. But I didn't tell her immediately that I was running away. I just showed her my bag. And she complimented me on how nicely I had folded all the clothes and how many clothes I had got in to the bag. I said, well, what happened next? And she goes, well, I just couldn't do it because I love my mom too much. So I went back to my room and I unpacked my bag. I said, well, where were you going to run away to? She goes, I had no idea. She said, I don't even know what I would have if I went left and right when I came out of the driveway. She said, I was just mad and I was just going to run. I had no relatives. I don't think I could have found my way around anywhere. And that's the way it is sometimes with us when we run. We, we, we're just running away. Sometimes we don't even know where we're running to. But we just make some crazy choices. I've met people who are running from God and they're in rebellion and they decide to get married. Now that's safe, isn't it? That's a good thing to do when you're, when you're running from God. Or I've talked to people that they're, maybe they're just fed up with Christianity and, and they're stiff-arming God. And so during this time of running from God, they, they decide they're going to get divorced. And within six months, they're remarrying. And then you start talking to them and they're, they're like, well, yeah, there was kind of this overlap. What do you mean? Well, there was kind of this connection that was being made even before we got married. That's a good thing to do when you're running from God, right? Safe. That kind of choice. Sometimes you're running from God and, and God's bringing prophets into your life and they're talking to you. And what do you do? I don't want to hear it. And you quit calling people back. And you quit answering texts. You won't even talk to your parents. Why is that? Because you're running away from God's wisdom and God's truth. And the people, they're going to say God's wisdom and truth to you. And we run from the places that we can hear God's wisdom and God's truth. And we run from the people that will speak God's wisdom and God's truth to us. In the youth group, kids drop out of 180. College students drop out of church. Adults start unplugging from the ministries that they're involved in. And then their attendance starts waning. And then pretty soon they're too busy for church. Why? Because we stiff-arm God. And we disconnect from wisdom and truth. And then we make poor decisions. And that's exactly what Jonah did. He ran to a place that made no sense whatsoever. The next three words in the text are very powerful. They show up over and over in this, in this book. Then the Lord. It's almost like a cadence. Then the Lord. Then the Lord. And when you run from God, you're going to have some then-the-Lord events in your life. Let's continue reading here. It says, Then the Lord, verse 4, sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Remember something. These are guys that aren't easily scared. And he continues, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo in the sea to lighten the ship. You know what that means? It means they're not going to make any money on this journey. Because they just threw all their cargo overboard. And then we read, but Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. In verse 5, the captain went to him and said, how 
can you sleep? So the captain's like, how can you sleep? The boat's about to sink. What's wrong with you? Don't you know we could all die? Don't you know we're not going to make any money on this trip? How can you just be oblivious to all of this? And then we read, get up and call on your God. The captain's talking to him. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Brings me to the second point. Runners are often the last ones to notice the connection between their running and the problems that come into their life. You know, it's easy to see that in other people. It's a lot harder to see it in the mirror. As a parent or a grandparent or even a teenager, you can be watching somebody's marriage unravel. And you see the decisions they're making. And you see the chaos that's resulting from these decisions. And it's just so apparent there's a connection. But the runners, they're the last ones to get it. Jonah goes down into the boat. He has no idea. He doesn't make any connection at all, at this point in the story anyway, that there's a connection between him running from God and this storm. It doesn't even seem to cross his mind. And if you're a mother or you're a father and, and your marriage is coming apart and you're creating this chaos in your home, do you realize it impacts your children, your children's children, that person they might marry and that new family they might start? It impacts everyone. And a lot of times the runner doesn't even see it. Have you ever noticed how generations tend to repeat the mistakes of their parents? And this chaos that's created because you are resisting God and other people see it before you do. And they're prophets and they, they're like a prophet and they come to you and they try to connect the dots for you. You're like, no, there's no problem here. That's not what's causing it. I don't think these have anything to do with each other. did this and now this is happening. Do you not see the correlation? Do you not see it? No, I don't. I, I don't see it. Because when you're running, you don't see the connection. You're late to recognize it. You're the last one to see it. Some of you are right there right now. Maybe God's talking to you and you're like, oh, maybe there's something here. Maybe I need to be paying attention because there's People can tell me some things, and I'm not listening. And the captain is saying to Jonah, we're having a prayer meeting. You need to get up here. Come pray with us. We don't even care who your God is. Just come up here and pray with us. So Jonah maybe wipes the sleep out of his eyes. He comes up on the deck, and he joins the prayer meeting, and the prayer meeting doesn't work. And then we're told that the sailors begin to talk to each other. It's not working. So they decide to cast lots. This isn't something we should do. But there's something that in ancient times people used to do because they had this sense that this wasn't just a storm. This just wasn't high pressure, low pressure colliding. These, these were seasoned sailors that sense there's more to this than what's going on here. 
And, you know, back then they used to think, well, if God's mad at you or a God's mad at you, he, he could be causing this. And we got to figure out who it is. And casting lots means they would, they would take stones and each person would be assigned a stone. And they would throw the stones into some kind of container, shake it up, and they would reach in. And whoever's stone was pulled out, well, that was the person. That, they, that was their lot, so to speak. And Jonah's stone was pulled out. And Jonah's like, go ahead, just, just, just throw me overboard. And the storm is just fierce. And in verse 9, when they asked about who he was, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, and made the sea and the dry land. And then verse 10, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he'd already told them so. And he said, throw me off the boat. And to their credit, they didn't want to do that. We, no, we're not going to do that. And they've lightened the boat and they keep trying to get control of things and, and it's not working. And then they start praying to their God and asking for forgiveness because they realize that they're going to have to sacrifice one for the good of the many. And then they threw Jonah off the boat. Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And you know, I remember back in those flannel graph days that I was talking about earlier, and I think we kind of all had this impression that they threw Jonah off, and like he immediately sinks in the water, the big fish, a whale, whatever it was, grabs him, and the sea's immediately calm. But I also really wonder if that's the way it happened. Because it seems to me like if Jonah would have been thrown into the water, he would have fought for his life. Don't you think he would have been swimming, treading water, whatever it took? And that seems logical to me. And then maybe the seas calmed down. And I don't know if this is what happened. It could have happened the first way I just mentioned. But maybe the seas calmed down. And there's Jonah 40 yards off the bow of the boat. And here's these sailors still on the boat. And the seas have calmed. And Jonah's waving, asking for help. And they're looking at him. Will we help him? think so. We don't know how it happened. But we come to that phrase again. But this time it's not then the Lord. It is now now the Lord. If you're a runner, you may be the last to see it, the last to recognize it. But there's going to be some then the Lord and now some Lord moments in your life. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I bet he did. Don't you think? I bet he was praying. And Jonah realizes something at the beginning of chapter 2 as he was in the fish, his belly, that all runners learn. You can run from God, but you can't hide from God. You can run. Runners run from God, but you can't outrun God. You can't hide from God. You can run from God in any area of your life. You can run into a relationship and think you're going to pull, come back around on the back side. But you can't outrun God. You can't hide from God. And I don't know, maybe even necessarily that as God chases us as, as much as maybe he just waits on us because we can't hide. And throughout scripture, we're told that if we are Christians, that we are God's children and the Bible uses the analogy of him being our father and over in the book of Proverbs it tells us this my son 
Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. And Jonah is going to learn as we continue our study that God doesn't go after him for some kind of payback. God doesn't go after him for some kind of revenge. He goes after him to win him back. It's just like if one of our children were to run away from home. We're going after him, aren't we? Not to, not to get some kind of sick revenge, but because we love them and we want them to be safe and we want them in our house. That would be our motivation. I heard a story about a little five-year-old boy. This actually took place in Atlanta. And this little five-year-old boy, it's getting to be about supper time, but it's not quite supper time yet. And he asked his mom, he said, what are we having for supper? She said, we're having spaghetti. He hated spaghetti. So he asked his mom, well, what, what am I going to have for supper? And she said, spaghetti. And he wasn't too happy about that. And he kind of goes off and supper time rolls around. And so they call everybody to supper. And his name was Greg. Greg doesn't show up. And they call a couple more times. He doesn't come. So then they start looking for him. They can't find him anywhere in the house. They can't find him anywhere in the yard. And I think every parent, you probably had a moment where you couldn't find a child. And, and just like absolute panic starts to set in. And after about 15 minutes, that panic is starting to set in. And the dad gets on the phone and he calls the neighbor. And he says, hey, have you seen Greg? And the neighbor mom's like, yeah, Greg's right here. So we've been looking everywhere for him. She said, well, he said something about spaghetti, but I didn't know what he was talking about. And so then he hears the lady kind of pull the phone back away a little bit like he used to do the old phones. And she said, Greg, your daddy's looking for you. And then the dad said, I heard this sweet little voice go, but I'm not looking for him. <laughs> and God, our father, is looking for us. But we're not looking for him. When you're running from God, God is looking for you. And the good news is, God doesn't quit. Resistance is futile. And it's not because God's trying to, to punish you. But it's because he wants to win you back. And I don't know what your situation is or how much you've rebelled or maybe you've rebelled your entire life. But I know God still wants you to, to win you back. And part of the reason I know that is because 750 years after this story, God sent his son to die on the cross and died for the sins of the whole world because God loved the world that much. And God, Christ, when he died on that cross, he took the punishment. That part is done. And your heavenly father wants you back, not because he wants some kind of payback. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, Pastor, how did you know this? How did you know to preach this today? I've been running for a long time and people have been telling me that. And I just don't connect the dots. And, and my parents and other people, my wife, my kids, my friends, and I just couldn't connect it. And this morning you're starting to connect it a little bit. And God loves you. That's the good news. God keeps coming after you. And my recommendation is, if that's you this morning, when we leave here today, you, you go home, you find a quiet place sometime, and you talk to God, 
You say no more pain, no more swimming, no more fishes. God, I get it. I surrender. Would you pray with me, please?